Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best of the best to help you scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. As you know, we are living very special times, uh, living through a pandemic crisis and what a lot of people consider a crisis of a lifetime. And in a crisis, there is always a threat and an opportunity. So there are companies that are scaling like crazy, and there are other companies that are suffering like crazy and need to adjust to scale again in the post-war period. We, we also uh, want to cover what is going on uh, across the world. And China is becoming stronger and stronger and stronger. And I think that this will have a huge impact uh, in the way that the world is organized. And, and that's why our guest today is uh, Jeffrey Townsend. Um, he is a business professor in China and the host of Jeff's Asia Tech class. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Very well. So thanks so much for making the time. And yeah, you have been doing an amazing uh, job about uh, explaining to the West how the East and Asia and China uh, works. I've been following your, your podcast and your content for a long time. And it's a pleasure to have you on the show. But in, in order to present yourself in, in, in first person to our audience, uh, it would be great to get to know a little bit more about you and how did you end being so passionate about uh, Asia and, and digital uh, China? Yeah, I mean, I, I basically wear two hats in life. Uh, Monday through Friday, I'm a deal guy. So I come out of sort of a finance uh, traditional background working for some billionaires for a while, developing their companies, fixing their companies, consulting. I mean, sort of a traditional MBA type background. And then uh, my other 30 for 40%, eh, 30% of my time is I, I write and I speak and I research and teach about uh, digital China, digital Asia, you know, these companies, the Alibabas, the Tencents, all of this, which is just... You know, that's kind of my academic interest, which is, you know, fascinating. It's, it's crazy. Things are moving very, very quickly, very exciting. It kind of overlaps like two really big ideas. One is just digital strategy, which is really interesting. And then the rise of Asia, which is another big event that's happening. China, South Korea, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, all of that is just a huge event as well. So I kind of get to think about both, which is a lot of fun. That's, that's really amazing. And uh, still, we have very few content, uh, content of quality uh, adapted to the, the West culture. So uh, that's why I'm kind of uh, consuming every single content that you publish out, out there. And again, congrats for, for the amazing work. And coming to, to the discussion uh, today and, and trying to give people um, in the scale-up community and the business community a better overview about what is going on in China and uh, in Asia, uh, what are the big changes or, or trends that you see in Asia tech? I mean, when I, when I use the word tech, I, I'm mostly talking about software, you know, not not engineering advancements, which is not my field. I'm thinking about the fact that certain things in life are made with ones and zeros versus atoms and, and physical goods. And that it just has very different economics. So this idea that 
digital software eating the world is moving into business after business and it starts to change them. Mm -hmm. And in some fields like media, it happens very, very quickly because it turns out media is just an information good anyways. But in other businesses like renting a bicycle, which is the world's most boring business you can think, try to think of a more boring business than <laughs> renting bikes. But you, you add a little bit of software to the world's most boring business and you get Mobike and Ofo and these bike rental businesses that just shot up out of Asia. Mm -hmm. 10 million of these bikes on the streets of China within a year. So this intersection of sort of how software changes traditional businesses and mm -hmm. creates new ones, I think that's just fascinating. And in many cases, it's happening faster in China, Asia than it is anywhere else. In other cases, let's say enterprise side, B2B, SaaS, you know, we're using Zoom, Slack, yeah. uh, Microsoft. The West is better at this. They're far ahead. They've been building ERP systems for 30 years. China doesn't have any of that. But if you go on the consumer side, it's, China is pretty much ahead. Um, not just a little bit, quite a ways now. And what we're seeing in China is now happening in Southeast Asia. It's happening in Indonesia. It's happening in Thailand. Uh, so retail. Alibaba is so much better than Amazon. It's almost a joke. Mm -hmm. Like WeChat is so much better than Facebook and social media. It's ridiculous. And the gap just keeps widening. On the consumer side, Asia is just moving ahead uh, for a couple of mm -hmm. reasons. It's, there's a lot more people. A lot more people have cell phones. Interesting. It's pretty ruthless environment competitive wise. I mean, there's multiple reasons why that is, but I think on the consumer side, it's getting, you know, but pretty much everything on a smartphone is now better in China than it is say in the U S. Mm -hmm. so, that wasn't the case five years ago. It's a, it's a very interesting uh, point and uh, specifically talking about uh, China. So I'm, I'm in touch and I, I coach several entrepreneurs across uh, Southeast Asia and, uh, and India. And it's curious to see that, uh, especially the ones in, in Southeast Asia, um, that because India just a, a giant domestic market, so, so they, they, they don't need to think about uh, getting outside of India, like what happens in China uh, as well. Uh, but in Southeast Asia, they have a lot of respect about expanding to, to China. So they want to be uh, regional players, to be the, the, the largest right. ones in, in the Southeast Asia uh, region. And uh, going to China usually terrifies them. So they go much more for China to uh, present opportunities to investors, to learn from them. Um, so how do you see the difference in Asia between China uh, and Southeast Asia and uh, and India, uh, not to talk about the, another block of uh, Japan, South Korea, which would be right. very different. I mean, there's a good report by McKinsey and Company. I, I teach with, mm -hmm. with them a bit. We write some books together, me and a guy named Jonathan Watzel, who's a McKinsey guy out of China. Very, very good. They had a report last year called The Future of Asia, which you can look up online. Thank it's you. really quite good at all of this. And it lays out a framework that basically says Asia is three things. It's developed Asia, it's China, and it's developing Asia. <laughs> and then sort of frontier Asia, which is like Myanmar. And, you know, we get different, but it's all together. It's all interacting. The mm -hmm. customers are all going back and forth. The capital and companies are all moving across these regions. 
Right. So we see Japanese companies are in China all over the place. We see, I'm in mean, Thailand, Japanese companies are everywhere in Thailand. They have been for 30 years, uh, South Korea. But then we look at Thailand, Indonesia, Vietnam, India. Well, that's different, but it all, you know, it, so it, it's different, but it's all connected. And mm -hmm. it's just a very interesting part of the world. And there's a lot going on. And you've got about 30% of the world's population living in this area very close together like it's a very dense part of the world the, the, the human race does not live on you know everywhere it's really concentrated in asia in a major way um, so you know you have hundreds of cities with one million people Absolutely. in the u.s you might have 20. you know here you have 200. so there's just a lot of stuff going on here um, but yeah it's hard to get your brain around because there's a lot of dimensions to the problem Japan is its own animal. South Korea is different, but they're tightly integrated with China. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, yeah, it's funky. Got it. Got it. And um, what, what we know this. So usually, and, and we are seeing when China is trying to collaborate with the US or with Europe or with other countries, uh, mindsets make it easier or more difficult to collaborate. And especially when you think in a very different way, it's, it's much more difficult to communicate uh, with each other. At the same time, it's, it's amazing because we can create much more diversity and much more innovation because we think in different ways. But if we are not able to establish communication and to leverage that, that diversity, uh, it is difficult to produce innovation. So to help the West and to help also uh, China, um, so, uh, what what are, what is different between the West, China, uh, Asia, and and Silicon Valley? Yeah, I mean it's it's hard to kind of explain. They're just different. It's um, you know the analogy I use is it's like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. Mm -hmm. You know they were just different people, and they built companies that were different, and they operated different, and they had cultures that were different. But they all, both were kind of cool in their own way. And they kind of fought with each other their whole lives. And then they became friends, I guess, sort of. Uh, you know, it's a little bit like that. <laughs> They're just different. There's, you know, China and the U.S. in particular are just different systems, culturally, political, economic, how the markets work, how businesses compete. Um, one analogy people use is it's like rugby versus soccer or football. Um, you know, and when you put them on the field <laughs> together, like, you know, that's when people start complaining. And it kind of China's more like rugby and the U.S. is a little bit more like, you know, football out of, you know, not American right. football. So when you put them on the same field together, it's like you kind of have problems. Yes. Uh, that's, there's a lot of truth in that. Um, but they, they just are what they are. I, I don't try and put them in buckets. And if you look at the numbers, both of them are amazingly successful, absolutely amazingly successful. You know, the GDP per capita out of China is unbelievable. You know, it's an exponential curve mm -hmm. from sort of compounding. And the U.S. is the same way. And very few countries have that, that, that growth and wealth over decades. China has it, the U.S. has it. But they get there by very different means. And... Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't, I don't think either of them are going anywhere. I think they're both going to be very successful, but they, they're different. It helps if you understand both. Got it. Uh, and, and that's why you are 
so dedicated to understand this uh, this different and uh, a new lens. And it's very interesting what you shared before and getting back a little bit on China be, being uh, so strong in in consumer tech and, and the West still very strong in enterprise B2B uh, um, tech. So do you see opportunities for uh, West scale-ups and corporations to kind of uh, get in or, or uh, be able to cooperate with China in, in that space? Or is it too difficult usually for, for the West to get in China to play in, the, in the, their strength, right? In, in the enterprise uh, B2B um, industry? No, I, I, one, I would, I would separate it out a little bit. Like the US-China is its own separate thing right now. I mean, there's so much political tension. I'd say take that out of the question. I mean, let's say if we look at Germany to China or yeah. Portugal or Spain to China, where it's not so politically tense right now. Um, and in that case, you can look at, you know, there have been, there's been expertise coming out of those regions forever doing very well in China, consulting firms. Uh, I, AI firms are doing well. Design firms are doing well. They have McKinsey does very well in China. Got it. Uh, you know, but they, they generally have a strategy that suits that where, you know, maybe they work a little bit more with multinationals going into China as opposed to domestic companies. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, there's, there's strategies for any of this that can work and there's strategies that are obviously never going to work. Uh, foreign companies came into China in about 15 years ago saying we're going to do a lot of real estate investing. <laughs> uh, Morgan Stanley, City Property, groups like that. And they had a couple good years and then they got blown out because it turns out you don't really bring a lot to the table, like as, you know, capital and how to build an apartment building. Well, <laughs> the domestic firms know how to do that. But if you come out of Germany with a lot of expertise in robotics, you can do nice deals all day long. And do joint ventures and, you, you know, you got to be smart. You got to be street smart, but that's a natural, there's a natural collaboration between Chinese manufacturing and brain power out of like Germany, mm -hmm. Northern Italy. So you see stuff all the time happening in those spaces. Um, fashion brands, luxury brands out of France do very well in China, Asia. So if you have the right strategy, it works, but yeah, you got to be, you got to be kind of savvy. Right. So, and of course, we 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 can't avoid to to comment one of the odd topics of uh, our world today. Uh, the entire world is in lockdown uh, now, or almost the entire world. Uh, China is getting back to to work. Of course, China has been affecting affected since uh, December, January, uh, and uh, Europe has been since February, March, and March now in the U.S. and Latin America, etc., and uh, and Africa, uh, is is getting serious. Um, so, what what do you think is is the impact of of coronavirus on on those changes that you are so passionate about, and uh, on on digital China? Right. I mean, digital China was really interesting in the the coronavirus thing, which is still happening, um, mm -hmm. in terms of the tech impact. Because when we had SARS rip through China and Asia, 2002, 2003, you know, Chinese consumers didn't have smartphones. There were no digital companies. There was, Alibaba had just been founded and just gone public. 
they weren't doing B2C, they were doing B2B. Although they launched Taobao, their major B2C platform, literally like the month SARS started. Um, but Jingdong, which is the number two e-commerce player in China, they were a physical retailer during SARS. They had stores. And because they couldn't get their people to come into the stores, they tried to sell online for the first time. And that's how they became Jingdong. And then they closed their stores years later. So, you know, these things, you know, they, they sort of spur innovation. Um, there's a lot of that going on because the defining sort of, I mean, the defining characteristic is we are all trying to in, we're all trying to avoid in-person interactions. That's what we're trying not to do. Right. Well, the way you do that is you replace it with a digital interaction, right? Instead of meeting in person, you meet online. Instead of selling in person, you sell online. So instead of watching a movie in a movie theater, you watch it online. Instead of going to the gym, you do it. I mean, it's the go-to right. solution for everything That's is amazing. a digital interaction. So we've seen just this surge of all these types of interactions in China. Uh, the enterprise side, which I mentioned, was kind of a laggard. That got a huge boost because the whole workforce went home. Mm-hmm. So every, like not every, but you know, 200 million companies, I'm sorry, that's wrong. 200 to 300 million Chinese started using like a video conferencing for work. Mm-hmm. You know, 20 mm-hmm. million companies because they had to. So Ding Talk, which is Alibaba's, uh, enterprise solution, video conferencing basically took off. Mm-hmm. Uh, WeChat work, Huawei has one. Those companies got huge adoption. Uh, education technology, which has been a big China idea for a long time. People have looked at China's private education market as a huge opportunity because Chinese families spend more on education than mm-hmm. any demographic in the world. So everyone said, oh, ed tech is going to be huge, but it never really happened. Mm-hmm. Well, now all the schools started video live streaming their lectures to children at home. Right. So all the, not all of them, but huge numbers of schools signed contracts and all learned how to live stream. So that got a big boost. And then there's a bunch of craziness that happened, like department stores, because nobody comes into the store. So they would have their sales associates, like 200 of them in a typical department store, they all started trying to sell online through live streaming. Mm -hmm. You know, hundreds and hundreds of sales associates tried to learn to sell online for the first time because nobody was coming in. Nightclubs started live streaming. I don't know, whatever happens in nightclubs at 10 a.m. or 10 p.m. because nobody's coming (laughs) to the club. Uh, Movie theaters started selling their popcorn online because nobody was coming to the movie theater. Like there was just all this crazy stuff that was um, being tried. Virtual tours of movie theaters, I'm sorry, of uh, museums. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chefs at famous restaurants were teaching classes for how to cook at home and you could cook along with the chef of the top restaurant in Beijing. All this stuff. So a lot of creativity, live streaming of workouts so you could work out with people. Anyways. Fascinating. Is there for, for the ones who would love would love to explore a little bit more about those opportunities? Because 
Something that we have been seeing in China is now uh, happening uh, all over the world because everyone needs to reinvent themselves in order to stay alive and stay in business, stay relevant in the in the new era and in the new context. So there is a lot of people that are discussing that the world will not, not be the same uh, anymore. And this, as you said, is having a huge impact uh, in the way we, we do business, in the way we live. Um, our life. Is there any any kind of special sources that are non uh, Mandarin that you would recommend to to follow? Uh, in terms of how the world is going to change or get back to normal, or or, or which, even which more in, in what what you just uh, been sharing about the um, the, the Taobao uh, example, the Jingdong, uh, the the video conferencing solution of Alibaba, uh, Alibaba Ding Talk. So some of the examples that you just shared, uh, so where, where people can see those stories and, and can learn those stories, or this is a lot of sources that, you, that of course you are. Yeah, and you can go to my website and just search right. coronavirus and you'll see I've been writing all about this. Um, right. So that's just jefftausen.com and you can go there and look at it, it's easy to find. And I've sort of summarized what I think, there's a lot of news about this, but I think mo half of it's sort of nonsense. So I've been sort of culling through it and saying, this is what I think is actually important and what's going to happen long-term. So, I mean, you can, at least that's my take. And there's a ton of articles about it, but a lot of it's just new stuff. Gotcha. McKinsey, I follow them a lot. They're, they're, they're actually quite good on Asia, China. So they've been mm -hmm. writing a lot about coronavirus in China. Uh, I think they're quite good at what they do. But yeah, that, that's kind of my go-to. Got it. And, and just a curiosity, um, in a certain time for, for anyone who was a non-English uh, speaker, it would be very important to speak English or to read English, to be able to access a lot of knowledge that is available in the world, because th that knowledge was available in English, the same in other languages. Nowadays that um, China is producing so much content uh, every single day, and is becoming the leader in a lot of spaces. Do you think that is, it is important to learn Mandarin to be prepared for the next decades? Eh, I don't know. I mean, it's a trade-off. Like if you have kids who are in school and they offer you, you know, six languages and Chinese is one of them, that's probably a good idea. Yeah. The video tools seem to be getting better and better. I mean, I tend to think industry knowledge is very, very important. Like, I don't think studying China is particularly useful as a, one, it's really complicated. You can't learn it quickly. But if you're, say, an automotive, okay, then as part of being an automotive executive or analyst or what, okay, you've got to understand the Chinese car companies. You have to, right? Because Ford, that's where they're selling. So depending what industry you're in, I think it's a natural thing to study. Automotive, retail, hospitality, luxury. China is just a, you know, luxury goods. China is like 40% of all purchases now. Mm -hmm. But if you're doing hospital operations, okay, this probably doesn't help you. Might be interesting. So I, I, would, I would think career first and whether it's required. And then if it's really core, then maybe at some point it's worth picking up the language as well. Uh, but the, you know, the auto translate stuff is getting pretty good now. You know, mm -hmm. we, we might be, a, we might be a handful of years away from, you know, sort of simultaneous translation. 
Um, what I tend to do in China now is, which is lazy, is I like to speak in English because I think I express myself better. Got it. And people in China like to speak Chinese because they express themselves better than English. Okay. <laughs> but we all understand each other. So I will speak English, but they understand me. And they speak Chinese, but I understand them. And that's the conversation. Got it. Um, that ten, I think that's probably the future. People will speak in the language that they're best at. And then the other side will understand, maybe through an earpiece or maybe just because they know the language. I think yeah. that's where we're going. But no, I don't think it's necessary. I think it's a good idea. I learned it, you know, later in life. I didn't know this from school. I learned, I just sort of took me a couple of years of little morning lessons on Skype. So, I mean, it's doable. Got it. Got it. That's a, that's a very good point. And what, what are some of the companies that you see uh, that are emerging in, in China, uh, in digital China, that you think will, will win um, in the upcoming years? I mean, the, the, the big digital ones everyone always talks about are Tencent, Alibaba, and Baidu. Those were the bat yeah. companies, BAT. That was kind of five years ago, 10 years ago. Now people talk about the DMTs, which is like uh, DD, which is the Uber of China. But if you look at the numbers, that's not really true. Uber is the DD of the US because DD is dramatically larger, like four times bigger. <laughs> you go to Southeast Asia, there's it's, it's DD. You go to Latin America, it's probably gonna be DD. I mean, it's. Uber is the small version of Didi now. Meituan, uh, Toutiao, which is uh, TikTok. Mm -hmm. That's ByteDance, basically. So those are kind of the next three people talk about. And then after them, people are looking at these, these AI-centric companies like uh, MegV and iFlyTech. And these are basically companies that are AI at their core who are doing things like facial recognition, surveillance, security, um, mm -hmm. and people tend to jump to the security aspects of that as a worry, which is reasonable. But, right. you know, when you do, when you do facial recognition, let's say you have, you know, you're China and you have 50% of the world's pigs live in China, 500 million pigs, half the world's population live in China. That creates a lot of problems with disease, with feeding, with, well, you can do facial recognition for pigs and you can track every pig in the pen which goes on forever and you can figure out which one is sick and which one's not and which one needs food and which one's about to give birth you can do all that now with facial recognition you can do it for fish you can do it for chickens um, and it turns out which is a bit of a surprise it turns out that surveillance is actually kind of important in a pandemic very that important. when you when you have a system-wide phenomenon, you need system-wide tracking. And um, yeah, it turns out surveillance tools are really important when you have a virus rippling around the world. So there's a lot in facial recognition that's actually very, very important. And that's coming out of China and Asia. And then there's a lot in there that's very, very concerning, which should be. So that's that next wave that you want to keep a look at, uh, the AI China companies. And these are all becoming Asia companies. The biggest e-commerce player in Thailand is Lazada, which is owned by Alibaba outright. Mm -hmm. So they're expanding to Asia. Yeah. 
So th this is maybe the, the second two points, but uh, let's start with the first one, which is um, we have been seeing, we, we, we saw, uh, we have been commenting as, as, as I did in the podcast that China is such a huge domestic market that in order to become a unicorn and a very large player in the world, uh, you only need to conquer China or even part of China. So you don't need to conquer um, all China. But we are seeing uh, Chinese companies getting out uh, and doing more and more investments across uh, the world. So why, 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 why are we seeing this shift? So China in Africa, China in Latin America, China in, yep. in Europe, uh, and not only in, in the US. Yeah, I mean, it's um, the manufacturing aspect was, has been going on forever. If you're buying tables, in Thailand, they're probably made in China or Latin America or the US. That's been going in the manufacturing base aspect has been going on forever. But that all moved upstream to more intelligent things like smartphones and laptops. Right. So, you know, 80 plus percent of the world's smartphones are made in China now, or at least they're Chinese companies. So you go to somewhere like mm -hmm. India, it's all Chinese smartphones. Got it. Uh, and you see that across Mexico, it's Huawei billboards everywhere in Mexico. That I think was sort of predictable. The part that maybe was not predictable, at least by me, was that a lot of the mobile apps are going abroad. So mm. if you go to India and TikTok, which is Douyin, Chinese company, ByteDance, yeah. you know, they enter there in mid 2018, but now you know, they're getting as many downloads as Facebook now in India. And if you look at like the top 100 downloads on the Google Play Store of India, probably 40 of them are now Chinese. And a year ago, it was maybe 15. So we're seeing the, the, the sort of mobile app companies doing really well. Um, mm -hmm. in, in some cases, Indonesia, Southeast Asia, India. Um, and then there's TikTok, which, which really has surprised everybody. I mean, it's outside of gaming, it's the number one or number two downloaded app in the world now. <laughs> okay, that's the first, we, we've seen US companies do this forever. They become big in the United States, Google, and then they become international. Right. This is the first Chinese company we've seen do that. Uh, you know, people in Portugal don't use Alibaba. You don't use WeChat, but they use, they use TikTok. Yeah, so absolutely. that's the first one we've really seen take off. So we'll see how far this goes. Um, generally, my, my sort of simple explanation be, has, has if, it's got a, if it's got a hardware component, China has a real advantage. Mm -hmm. So drones, DJI does well because it's hardware plus software, Chinese company. Mm -hmm. uh, smartphones, hardware plus software, Chinese companies. Um, maybe autonomous vehicles, maybe autonomous robots, smart TVs, smart speakers, you know, China tends to have advantage because it's the world's manufacturing base. But hardware plus software, China has a real strength. Uh, mm -hmm. TikTok is pure software. So that was kind of interesting, that one. Very, very good one. And you kind of anticipated uh, my next question, uh, which would, would see how, how do you see China uh, or in what areas, what industries, uh, what verticals do you see China uh, winning in the upcoming decade and if you see a transition from consumer 
digital consumer or, or consumer to, um, to more enterprise. Do you see this transition as well? So they becoming also uh, as strong as they are in consumer in, in enterprise B2B um, in the B2B space? No, I think it's a mix. Like, I, like one, you have to think that like a lot of these businesses are naturally domestic. Like a lot of Chinese companies, they don't care about outside of China because the market is so big. So why bother? Usually you win China first and then you go abroad, which is what Didi did, which is what Alibaba did. Right. So a lot of them, you know, winning internationally is optional. Winning domestically is life or death. Right. So yeah, we see that a lot of this is just domestic. It doesn't matter. And then what happens is sometimes a leader out of China wins and then a leader out of the US wins and then they, they don't enter each other's markets. Uh, Amazon's not in China, Alibaba's not in the US, but they're both in Southeast Asia. <laughs> so right. we see the competition happen in a third market and that's happening right now in cloud where there's three major companies coming out of the US, right? AWS, Azure, and uh, Google Cloud. But we see three major players coming out of China, Aliyun, Tencent, and uh, I think Baidu is number three. And they're both going after Asia. So that story is really interesting. Uh, so you have to kind of look at it industry by industry to see what's gonna play out. And um, Alipay, the financial companies like Alipay are going international against companies like Visa and MasterCard, which is really interesting. Very like interesting. people use PayPal. I mean, PayPal sucks. Like I, it's, it's ridiculous how bad PayPal is compared to WeChat and Alipay, which are a hundred times better. So what do you think people in, you know, in Southeast Asia are going to use? I mean, it's, so you, you kind of got to go industry by industry to see what's what. Electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, the U.S. seems dramatically better than the companies we're seeing coming out of China. They just seem further ahead by a long ways. So who knows? Who knows? Perfect. That's and that's a very good example to get to the to the last stage of the show. Uh, and uh, we just have our favorite question of the show, which is if you would get back. Uh, to the beginning of your interests but for for China and on your career some some days behind, what advice would you offer to your younger self? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there's a there's a Warren Buffett statement because I, I I study him like crazy. You know, he says if you find your passion, you'll never work a day in your life, <laughs> which is in fact true. I've, that's kind of how I live now. But if you ask most people, what's your passion? 95% of people say, I don't know. <laughs> Correct. Most people have a job. Most people have a career and they like their career and it's interesting. But you know, if you don't pay them, they don't come in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I spent most of my career, not most, let's say half my career doing stuff that was smart. It was a good career move. I was being logical, being prudent. And then I found my thing, which I do all the time because I just love it. And true, I've never worked a day since, right? But you can't really count on that, you know? So 
I, I wouldn't say to my younger self, hey, this is what you love to do in life, go do this, because I didn't know what it was, and it took me a long time to find it. I think that's common. I think that's most people. Right. So I, I would say, like, do the smart thing, do what you're good at, and, and go with the crowd. Like, follow the smartest people you know. And sort of piggyback the wisdom of the crowd. Like, who are the smartest people at your business school? What are they all going into? Okay, that's probably a reasonable move. And then if you find your thing, okay, make the jump. But that's, that's probably what I would have done, even though I know where I want to be today. I wouldn't tell myself to do this because it's unrealistic. You had to find it. I'd probably say follow the smartest people you know for the first five years of your career. And that's probably the right move. But no, 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 no. Everyone I know sort of, I don't know anyone who got there directly. Everyone I know sort of bumped around a little bit. Got it. Very good one. Uh, Jeffrey, people can follow you and can get to know more about China. Bye. Yeah, go over to uh, jefftausen.com. I have my online Asia tech class and there's a uh, free 30-day sign-up. So it doesn't cost anything to try it out. Sign up, see if you like it and go from there. And I will just flood you with content like emails and podcasts and you know more about China and digital Asia than you ever wanted to know. Uh, I've been consuming that content and I strongly uh, recommend uh, Jeffrey, Thanks so much for, for joining us today. It was really a pleasure to, to host you and to open up our minds about what is going on in China and Asia and how it differs from, from the West. Thank you. Appreciate it. And to our community, thanks for being on that side. We keep uh, accomplishing our mission, bringing to you the best of the best. So you can scale your business, you can succeed and face this pandemic crisis like another weapon to make you stronger and to keep scaling uh, during and after the crisis. Stay healthy and see you soon.